Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to, to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And um, yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to our special edition at the end of August um, for another cutting-edge show on um, a very special topic. We're coming to you on a Monday evening, and um, we're hoping we're hoping that you'll join us live or on the archives, as always. Um, we we have a very uh, unique kind of a show because the way our guest chooses to impart her message about uh, the loss of a loved one is very unique indeed. And that's part of what attracted me to, to try to, to help uh, build awareness, as always. So uh, before we bring on Dr. Maggie Zingman, the mother of uh, Brittany uh, Phillips. I will uh, say good evening to uh, Delilah. How are you? Doing fine, Donna. Thank you. And I'm so pleased to be on another show with, with Maggie Zingman. This is such an important issue that she's going to give information to our listeners. And, you know, the the last what 13 years I think it has been just uh, horrendous for her and she has done such an amazing job of taking the tragedy that she's lived through and making an issue out of it and actually really getting out there hands on boots on the ground and um, getting things done I, I really commend her I known her for a long time and I love her dearly so our hope is that some national news service would pick this story up and do something with it not only um, just for Maggie's benefit and Brittany's benefit but to benefit many many other people out there who are in the same situation and have similar cases who could be solved because of DNA collection 
Um, so I don't want to give away the whole show, so I'm going to turn it back to you, Donna. Well, that's okay. I mean, we're we're very enthused to have this. So, Dr. Maggie Zingman, welcome to Shattered Lives, and welcome to our 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 family of radio shows. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be able to talk with you and Delilah. I mean, you're all you give a voice to so many silenced voices that like Delilah said, I've known her for years. She found me driving out on the road somewhere and we've connected ever since, but without shows like yours, you know, it's very hard to get the story out there. Well, well, yeah. And I, I, I think that's part of the problem. So we have to use as many mediums as we, as we can from holding up signs on the edge of the road to doing this caravan like you do to doing uh you know, uh, for missing persons, we do uh, on the road to remember tour. There's many permutations, but I, I don't know. I wanted to ask you: um, is is your caravan uh, uh, for justice? Are you the only person that you know of that that brings your message in quite the way that you do? As far as I know, in the last, I guess I've been doing it for about ten years, and I have yet to meet. Anybody else who's driven, I think now I've driven 180,000 miles through 48 states um, to get her story and to get the need for law change out there. So I have yet to meet anybody else out there. I would love to find out if other people are doing it, but I have yet to hear of that. Well, I think that makes you pioneer, you know. (laughs) I've always wanted to be a pioneer. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. And um, so, well, you know, does it as as a mother, as a psychologist, does does it over over all of these years, does has it gotten easier to talk about your daughter and the circumstances of her death, or is it harder? Does it increase? I mean, how how do you feel about it now in 2017 versus 2004 or five or six? Yeah. Well, I learned pretty much almost right away that I had to leave the psychologist at the door because nothing taught me about how to deal with losing a child. Um, and it, it really, it doesn't go away. It, it changes into something different. I mean, I can still cry about it. I look at her pictures every day cause they're all over my car. Um, you know, it, on one hand, it's easier to talk about it, but each year that it remains unsolved, that mm-hmm. creates, you know, the hole that starts filling up ends up, you know, opening up again. But what always, and it's why I keep on traveling, you know, part of just people's reaction to me on the highway at a rest stop. And when I go, I always visit cities and I'm in the city center usually. I mean, those are the things I've had gifts, just emotional gifts from people over these last 13 years that although I take my daughter back in a minute, you know, they're just unbelievable. The people across the U.S. have just been so welcoming and so caring that it, it gives me a way to carry it. Yeah, I can imagine, like, on the road, like a Charles Cavalt or someone. Are you keeping, like, a journal or a diary when you're when you're driving across country? Yeah, I've been keeping a journal um, and I, I usually document it on my website and on uh, Facebook. I'll post all the stories and I keep a collection of the stories, which gets a little bit hard because I've had 165 stories now wow. that I've had, 
since 2007, um, but each one is so special, um, you know, and and I've been usually writing a book, but I've never gotten anywhere where I could even start thinking about publishing it, but I keep, you know, a record, and, and just every, it's hard to forget everything. I mean, everywhere I go, there's something that even triggers a memory of Brittany or just the experience, um, you know, just has a place in my mind that it's very hard to forget and I don't want to forget it. Um, oh, of course not. And, you know, as, um, as, as a, uh, a person who used to work in healthcare and someone that works in human services, I find it very interesting that you would say that, you know, you had to put the psychology role, you know, kind of at the door because, it uh, your your profession did not really prepare you for this. Do you feel now in meeting all of these families that have had unsolved homicides or or the like? It that's that's the commonality that it, even if they've had this loss, they they really search for someone um, in terms of a therapist or someone to actually be able to connect with on a meaningful level have you yeah yeah and it I, I had to put it behind because I really had to learn a lot I mean when I was first notified you know all I could think of was who do I call I don't want to wake up my parents I don't want to wake up my best friend who lives in Tulsa who would have to come up you know you don't think correctly and then the way I was notified um, you know, they just said, are you Maggie Zingman? You need to call Tulsa police. Your daughter's been murdered. All those things I didn't know how to deal with. What I learned soon on after, you know, four or five months is that as I became an advocate for all the mistakes that happened with me, that was part of the healing process, which I really, maybe I understood as a psychologist because I'm a trauma psychologist, but, you know, I wasn't prepared for being jealous when somebody else's murder got solved. Um, yeah, you know, I wasn't. I, I just wasn't prepared for a lot of those things. I wasn't prepared for not being allowed to see my daughter. So I've learned about how the voice is more part of healing, which I always knew. And you know, I, I've also learned because people, you know, when you fall into it, even people were starting to tell me, "We'll do this, and you'll find it." I've learned that you know, you don't necessarily have to have gone through it to help somebody. Because sometimes somebody just saying to me, I can't imagine what you went through is such an unbelievable statement because they are imagining in a way, you know, mm-hmm. that it's just, it's, it's broadened it. But, you know, I mean, when you get the notice that you've lost anybody, but especially a child, that loss of expectations just puts you in a shock, no matter if you're a doctor or a psychologist or, you know, stay-at-home mom, you just can't think logically for a while. So that's sort of what I mean. But yes, you know, because of so many families I've met, who they'll say, you know, well, we just gave up because our detective, you know, just sort of wasn't doing much. It's those people where they get a voice, you can really see the the healing and why I'm really stressing on people, you know, to reach out to me when I'm in the cities, you know, I try to do it through the website and, and Facebook because, feeling part of this family that none of us chose really does help part of the healing, which is going to be a lifelong process. So. 
Uh, oh, definitely, yeah. So just so that we understand a little bit, and then we can, uh, I mean, the process of what you're actually doing, and then we can, you know, get into the, the more more of the details about who your daughter was and the circumstances. Okay. Your caravan, do you um, kind of set your sights on, because uh, I know you have a professional job as well, just like we all do, and then we do these other things on the side, but right. do you pick a region? <laughs> Uh, I have a few things on the side, as you know. But uh, do you pick a region of the country to target, so to speak, and then you map out the cities that you want to go to, and then you you contact uh, police and other families, or you try to get the, the newspaper articles to connect with other families? How does this, since you are the creator of this kind of a caravan, how does this work? Well, initially, it was generally just to get the her story out there. But after about two years, what it did start to be was, because I was learning more and more, it started being regionally. It started being, back then, it was 16 states took DNA to rest. So it, it was initially to all states, how many states I could cover. But I soon started focusing more on the states especially that hadn't taken DNA at arrest or back when I first started, Kentucky didn't even have a taking it conviction. Um, so that was one focus of it. And then it was basically trying to get the story in every state. So it was probably a combination of both of those. And what's worked best, I tried initially to pre-plan it, send out emails way before I ever went out. And that really never brought in a lot of coverage. So I started just deciding I knew the path I would take and I would email and sometimes call the media first in whatever state I was going to be in the next day. And that was usually at least 30 emails to various media newspaper. And then when I got in the city, I'd be contacting the police because often that would be a joint thing because the media, of course, you know, would want to uh, have something that would even bring it more home. So, um, you know, I would do that. If I knew I wasn't always traveling when um, legislators were, you know, in session, but if it was, you know, a few times I've been able to go, like, in North Carolina about five years ago in Albany. Um, So, but it's a lot of it. Sometimes it changes. Like, I was just out. I traveled. I took about three weeks to go from Oklahoma all the way out to San Diego and back, and some reporter called me from Las Vegas. So I will change my direction sometimes to get a story out because the story is so important, all aspects of it. Um, so does that wow. explain it a little bit? Yes, yeah, yeah, it does. And if, if for people that don't have the benefit of seeing, although you, we have a lot of postings, her, you have like an SUV. Is it, well, is it an SUV or a station wagon? Yeah. And it's, it's colored. It's actually the third generation wrap. I started I, a company called Midwest Wraps in Tulsa. We connected, and they've donated three wraps to the three cars that I've driven up to. You know, I've just basically run them in. So. Um, but it is uh, this current one. It's a uh, Nissan Rogue, and they now have computer programs where they've taken the pictures I gave them. The different we have a profile on the front hood, and it's uh, it's wrapped after it's printed on this vinyl. The whole car is wrapped 
in vinyl and it has caravan to catch a killer on the side because I wanted something, even if people were passing me on the highway that if they saw, they could go search after it. And I've found people where like I was in Maine and somebody wrote, I passed you on highway one and saw that and did a search. And, and so, you know, part of it is my daughter's pictures to pull people in. And then part of it is, getting information so people can search it out more and it just brings people up to the car which is why I go into the city centers because at lunch or other times or after stories been a lot more people come up to the car and I'm able to give them pamphlets about her murder about DNA and all those things yeah well we want to be sure to mention this a couple times too and how do you how do you um, pay for this venture how do you fund it I work. <laughs> you, okay. I mean, basically, I you know, I I do. I mean, you know, I you take, that's, you take donations too, correct? I do, I do, I do. Um, you know, a lot of times because of work and stuff, I just haven't had a lot of time for fundraising. And you know, I have people all across the U.S., but locally, you know, there's not a lot of people connected to this. So, you know, every once in a while, we've done some fundraising, and that's helped. But mostly. You know, I I use I work so I can do this, and I love right. my work too. Well, but. is is there is there a vehicle by which um, people can donate um, to you uh, to your cause if they're listening to this show and they can they can send a donation? We want to mention that a couple times. Right. Um, yeah, we've had two uh, um, GoFundMe and Plum funds, and they just recently ended, so I'm going to be redoing that. But they can also. Um, contact me on our website, which I think you have the address. It's just brittanyphillipsmurder.net, and there's a contact form, and I can um, tell them where they can also donate. But I'm going to be putting up the next Plum Fund again um, because I'm hoping to go out in November for a full month if I can. Oh, Um, wow. Well, Well, Maggie, you just go ahead. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we get too much further – into the show, um, you know, just in case there may be some producers or people listening to this that that may be able to do something and help you down the road, um, can you briefly go into your daughter? I I, yes. I want to know about Brittany and you know what what kind of a young lady was she? What was what were her hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and and what what ultimately happened? What Right. What came that was to my this next point? question. Go ahead. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yeah. Um, Brittany, you know, was of course I'm a prejudiced mom, but you know she was an unbelievable, beautiful young woman. Um, she had gone away to college off on a full ride chemistry scholarship um, and came back home because she was a year younger than everybody. But prior to that, you know. In school, a lot of people called me after she died and said, you know, she was never part of a group, but she was always friendly to me. You know, she always made seemed to make time for everybody. She was about five one and accused me of making her short, but um, you know, she had these long blonde <laughs> curls and these deep set black eyes that, or brown eyes, but they looked black. You know, um, that just drew people in to talk to her all the time, and she was silly and. When she was at college, you know, she would always tell me her friends, you know, 
were just shocked that she could be so open with me about stuff. And, and she did. She would always talk about her feelings and, and her fears and stuff. And, you know, we had a conversation right before she was murdered where she was just upset about some medical stuff. And, you know, she just would get like a little girl when she was upset. And, you know, she always called me mom, except when she was upset. And then she called me mommy in her last words that she said to me um, that night that we talked were, I love you, mommy, you know, so I have this memory of this little girl, young woman, you know, because she was 18 then, um, you know, talking to me in that way, and um, she was going to work in cancer. What she didn't know is I lost my mom eight months after her to um, thyroid cancer, and, you know, if she had been alive, she probably would have made that her focus, I mean, because she was so compassionate, you know, she was only, oh gosh, how old was she, 10, when the um, Oklahoma City bombing happened, and mm-hmm. I was the first responder, and she wanted to go with me, and she did one day when I was working the helpline, I mean, even at 10, you know, and she was a dancer, she was just a beautiful, vivacious young woman, and, um, you know, people, she would stop traffic, because she really... I say she had a mixture of my looks and her dad's looks, and together it made her really beautiful, even though I divorced her dad when she was four. But, you know, I mean, she just had this little round angel face. And, you know, what happened was uh, I had talked to her that Monday night on the 27th, I think it was, of September 2004. Um, She was uh, having allergy problems. So I said, well, well, I'll get you a doctor's appointment and we'll get together this weekend because I lived about 50 miles away from her. And so I called her that Tuesday and I was going to tell her I thought I might have a doctor's appointment. She didn't answer. I called her Wednesday. She didn't answer. But she was, once she was home, she was going to her junior college to get some um, extra courses. And so I didn't think anything. I just thought, oh, she's out late. And then Thursday night, I called her with that typical mom call of, Brittany, just call me. I know you're okay, but just please call me. And it was 1 a.m. on October 1st that somebody knocked up my door in Chandler and just very quickly said to me, like I said earlier, um, you need to call Tulsa police. Your daughter's been murdered. And when I got down to Tulsa, I discovered what happened, but I discovered what happened by the detective telling me not because she was there or anything, because they had ID'd her by her license and they'd already taken her away, but she had been raped and suffocated sometime between, um, I guess, 9 p.m. that Monday night after I talked to her and 8 a.m. the next morning. And so she had been dead for three days, all those days. I was calling, she was laying dead there, and they said she did die automatically, you know, so but the, when they first told me that, I thought, oh, my God, you know, what if she was calling mommy, mommy, you know. Oh, that's just so that incredible. Time. I know of somebody else, an elderly lady that died died in the same manner, and I just can't imagine that someone would be there, and that must go through your mind, like, you know, uh, if only, Right. Um, what was was it was it true that um, in some of my readings that I did, uh, it, somebody actually went like to the second floor and broke in through uh, like a second story porch through French doors or something, and that's how the person mm-hmm. might have gotten in. 
We're not sure. Um, there didn't seem to be any evidence of the door being broken in. Even And Brittany was pretty good about locking her doors, you know, because I'm a trauma psychologist. She learned early. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the, the screens were all off, so they thought maybe he could have come through the window. But I was sitting there cleaning up one day, and it was the first time I ever thought I, I need to ask Brittany this because I was looking at the flats on the window of the French doors up there and it looked like one was out of place and I thought immediately I'll have to ask Brittany if that was out of place and it was you know we all anybody surviving homicide for a while you do that you're thinking oh maybe I can ask them this and then you realize you can't so you know it was a second story but what I also knew was that um, Brittany had locked herself out one time and she told me a friend of hers shimmied himself up on the uh, porch and was able to, you know, sort of pull that open to get her in. Of course, we DNA swabbed that guy, and it wasn't him. Um, the fact is, is we had, there was a couple of profiles of DNA that were found there, but we have DNA from both blood and semen from the same person. So if we ever get a match, that's going to be almost 99% probably her killer because from two different sources it's the same person it's the same uh it it seems like you're so close but yet so far in in a way because how many samples was it something like three thousand in the tulsa area had been run yeah and it's in sort of tulsa kansas you know where the police have more we've probably run about three thousand comparisons from sex crimes from all the male friends she knew, all her old boyfriends from people down at the school in Florida, from uh, the, the junior college there, any crimes that happened around, because they say it usually, you know, somebody lives five miles within the radius. It's somebody they know. She's not fitting any of the typical profiles. So, um, but the scarier thing is, is that I work closely with OSBI, which is the Oklahoma Bureau and mm-hmm. from what the head of forensics there, who I'm very close with, tells me, is probably by now it's been run against a million uh, profiles because the samples aren't in CODIS. But the national database, um, it's been run at least a million times. And that's that's criminal, that you can't find a match. Because he's probably serial is what they're thinking. We don't know, but... He's, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. He's probably what? Serial. They think serial if he's killer. not dead, you know, he's probably serial. If it was somebody who accidentally did it, the general consensus is they feel that the guilt would show. But sexual crimes by people who are hardwired that way, that it's the one crime that doesn't get to- talked about a lot in the prison system or to friends. And serial killers, too, tend to... or rapists tend to move along highways, which bringing back to the loop of my caravans is another reason I especially do border states because I've learned from detectives all across the U.S. that a lot of these people will travel and then get stuck at the border or think they can hide out. And I once was in Montana and they found somebody uh, who was the killer of somebody in Oklahoma while I was there, which was very weird. So. Wow. Um, well, now that you know you bring up the the issue of um, 
DNA and uh, how um, Oklahoma seems to be one of the states in the forefront. There are a lot of uh, people who kind of um, do not agree with the um, position that uh, we should be swabbing for DNA upon arrest. Many, many states have it uh, upon conviction. Can you kind of go go through this scenario so that people understand what, what, what used to be and, and how it has evolved up until this point? Yes, I can. And what I first want to say is before this happened, I was really naive about DNA, and I believed a lot of things which I hear you know, as an argument, and it was only through educating myself um, through a lot of scientific websites, through talking with a lot of district attorneys, through talking with a lot of bureaus that I've learned. And I was surprised at how wrong I was about um, the belief. Right now we have 29, I think we may have gotten state 30, that all take DNA at some form of arrest. Initially, it started out where I think, I forget how many years ago, only states were taking it at conviction. But that initially was a hard fight, too. And then about six years ago, I think Kentucky was finally the last state to finally take it at conviction. Um, when I started doing the caravans, I think we had 15 states. And like I said, now we have um, 29 um, one yeah. article I read said 32, but I don't know if that's right. Well, there's a couple that, like ours, Oklahoma, and it depends who you who you um, read because Oklahoma passed it after eight years. I mean, that I fought for eight years to get them to pass it, but they haven't funded it this past year, and so now we're fighting that. So it, for one or two of the sites, they only talk about the funded ones, and then right. – um, so, and then like um, Florida, I think they're finally getting theirs fully implemented, but when they had it in 2009, maybe, they mm-hmm. had a 10-year plan of getting it implemented. So it, the number's a little bit deceptive, and it's still a problem why we still need more, but um, I'm not sure how you want me to go about this, but, you know, the DNA swab, the, the, a couple of things. You know, people, one, think their DNA is floating around out there. When the DNA is taken, a swab that just, it's a Q-tip in the cheek, it's analyzed in very secure areas, and all they do is we have thousands of pieces of DNA in our body. They chose, 30 years ago, they chose 14 pieces, 13 which have basically, they're like spacers in our body, and they don't have any of the, uh, medical issues, color of hair, anything like that. They, it, they're just specific to that person, and then they say whether there's male or female. And when they pull those out, which takes time, that is then coded into a um, numerical um, statement that represents that DNA sample. That's what's compared to other DNA samples. That's what goes up into CODIS. It's a series of numbers and identifiers, not the um, the sample. The sample is kept. So it would be like assigning a social security number or something, somebody, yeah. right? Yeah. Even the DNA, name. social security. <laughs> yeah, and even the name, you know. And then, but then there's some people who have issues with numbers. But 
the name isn't even identified. In CODIS, let's say Tom Jones was his, he'd be number 58573, and then his profile would be attached to that. And so then it, if there was a match in CODIS, they'd say, okay, 5753 matched 4321, you know, and, and you know, so, I mean, it's, it's very protected. You know, they have even the machines that analyze it and where it's stored. I, like in Oklahoma, it's very typical. There's a time that the machines do the self-cleaning, and everything's on such a schedule. If anybody ever broke the schedule, you know, it, it, it would be detected. But the thing is, nothing can be done with the DNA. Now, that being said, when you have a blood sample at the doctor's office, when you do a swab to identify your child, um, people sending off their samples to 23andMe or different things, whoops, or things like that, you know, those samples are very less protected. And, you know, insurance companies could, you know, have people, you know, it's just, it's a very protected system. It's not invasive. And there's been at least five court, state Supreme Court cases that ruled is, um, that DNA is just a digital fingerprint, that it doesn't mm. invade privacy. And one of the main things with the Fourth Amendment, and it took a while for me to learn this, is that you have, you know, that it's unreasonable search and seizure. Well, when a person is arrested, you have to arrest a person with probable cause. Right. And you can't arrest them or that whole arrest gets thrown out if you don't have probable cause. And they used to argue this about fingerprints. Well, we can't take the fingerprints. And then what finally won it over after all these years, um, you know, because we've been doing fingerprints forever, um, was that if you have probable cause, that per- and I worked in the prison system 10 years, I can tell you when somebody's arrested, everything is searched. The DNA sample is the least invasive thing that happens to them because when people are arrested, they want to make sure they're not bringing anything in. And, and so this isn't invasive in any ways. And invasive whatsoever. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And along with the yeah, five, you know, uh, Supreme courts in the States that said, because the major one that finally went the more recent one was King versus Maryland. And that went all the way to the Supreme court and the Supreme court ruled that it wasn't an invasion of privacy, that it was no different than fingerprints. All it is is that it's a more accurate because fingerprints are about 86% or something accurate. Mm-hmm. And and the DNA is 99. I may have the 0.5 or whatever. I mean, it's very hard to, to uh, do anything with it. That being said, one of the most important things is you can have a match on your DNA. Like we may get a match. But if we don't have any other evidence, we don't have a case because you can't just convict with DNA. So when people argue, oh, it's going to do, you know, uh, false um, imprisonment, actually we're beginning to work with um, the Innocence Project. And whereas the Innocence Project is using the DNA to get them out after 15 years, DNA can help prevent these false imprisonments because usually you hear oh yeah that guy was in prison for 20 years and then they found that his dna did not match that dna didn't match so oh it has so many benefits maggie i just can't believe it what would you in in all of these years you must have sort of polished polished your um 
I don't want to say, say spiel, but your your comeback to say say for example, if I'm a legislator and you're you you pull into my town and you happen to be able to meet with them, what 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 is most important to them? What what would be your response to them when they start to balk about this or you know? So how would you address a legislator, and then how would you address someone from the media? How how would it be different? In terms of well, this issue, right, and that's a great question. You know, I mean, one thing I've learned in because I spent eight years—I don't know how I did it—you know, staying up at the Capitol. But I really had to learn to speak the language of the lawmakers. You know, and for anybody who's advocating anything, understanding the language of the people that you're trying to influence is most important. And right. stuff. And so part of it is, you know, uh, wanting if they're, you know. Pro, if they're pro-community, then they want to lessen crime. So I will always talk about, I bring in studies from Maryland and from Indiana and Denver and Washington State. And Denver and Indiana especially did these crime studies that show, and I'm not being accurate in the percentage exactly, but, you know, it brings cold cases down to one-third of what they are. In Denver, they've done all these burglary studies because they say one burglar usually has 221 burglaries associated with them. It brings down the cost of the cold cases and the multiple arrests and stuff. So I really try to bring in those studies to the lawmakers and show how it cuts Mm -hmm. down on crime, how it, uh, Denver and Tennessee now, I mean, Colorado and Tennessee are talking about how they are actually, I wouldn't say, they're making money because they're not losing money on man hours and stuff you know they have much much less a deficit um you know and i bring it home to family because one of the things i think we have with lawmakers is it's still this sort of uh old-fashioned belief that somehow the victim causes and i'm sure you both understand that you know where we still blame the victim sometimes so yeah yeah i try to help them understand that you know, this happens to anybody. I'm a psychologist. Brittany was a, you know, chemistry major and stuff. And it's not just people who are putting themselves in danger. And the only way that we're going to stop this risk is getting these predator criminals off the street early in their careers and, and showing. I have timelines where I show the lawmakers um, where this person was first arrested and how, um 20 years or 15 years or 10 years later, how, how many crimes happened before he was, he or she was convicted, um, you know, and how that DNA would have stopped, you know, those two murders and those three assaults and all that. So a lot of it is more factual, but also, I mean, I had a a lawmaker who stood on the floor of the Senate in Oklahoma and said, um, this is not something that our, our military is fighting for. Again, a myth that he didn't understand, and I think he, for many reasons, he changed his vote. But I work with vets and and soldiers, and I have for about eight years. And what I know is every single uh, service member gives their DNA when they enlist. So if their bodies are blown up or if they are killed, that their families at least get something sent home, you know. And so you know, a lot of times it's not necessarily. Uh, 
adamant, you know, being against it, it's that nobody's questioned some of the myths like invasion of privacy or that the DNA is going to be floating out there. You know, for some people, it's just educating. And, you know, in the city with the, uh, when I'm doing media stories, it's still some of the same things, but I try to bring it home as, you know, Brittany's just the girl next door. I never expected that this would be my life, you know, and none of us do when we have a kids. We never, we think, what if? And we go, no, no, can't think about that. And, you know, so I try to bring it home that I don't want anybody else to go through this never-ending loss that I will never, ever fully get rid of. But I can lessen it if I can help people understand you know, this could be your daughter. I mean, I really try to bring it home in a very personal way. In a personal way, yeah, definitely, yeah. Cause, because that, it, but people people don't want to think, don't want to go there. Oh, no, it can't be my family. And, and that's the hard sell, too. Now, if you encounter someone from the media, are they sort of carrying around those same um, falsehoods, or is it a different different approach that you may use with them because those are the people you're trying to attract now. What, what should, what should they know? Um, I mean, they should know the same information you just told us about the lawmakers, but yeah, their, their focus is different. Well, their focus is different, but part of it is I know each city I'm going into. So I'm going to have aspects of that city. I try to bring it home to that city. I will try to bring up, families or people maybe that I haven't even met, but, you know, crimes that I know have a similar history because, you know, they are, they want to know how it relates to, um, you know, their city and stuff. and The area and, they're covering, yeah. yeah. Right. And I often also, I mean, you know, I don't know if this is good or bad, but, I mean, over these years, I've had to sort of look at it as a science of what do I need to do? Same way I came up with the idea of the caravan. How do I get my story beyond Oklahoma? So, you know, I have to look at the reporters. I will investigate each of their histories. I read their bios. And I'm going to try to find somebody who is a crime reporter or who's an investigative reporter. Because if I can get them often, you know, like you all, you're so passionate. So doing a story with you is mm-hmm. going to give it this extra oomph, you know. Yeah, it's, so, half, it's you know. half the battle. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, Maggie, is. If, playing devil's advocate, if, if well, and not necessarily so, because we don't know who's going to listen to this show, either mm-hmm. who is listening in, in live right now or later. Um, but if there is a producer or a reporter or someone nationally that can give this story some dynamite, speak to them. What would you want to say? Well, that, you know, even if they are, don't believe that what I'm saying is, you know, strong facts or whatever, have the discussion with me because the discussion, you know, it could educate me on something, probably not about the DNA, you know, but, But I didn't understand a lot of this, and I think I can help, you know, help others to understand it. But also that, you know, the more information that we can get out, the more lives we're going to save. Because I have met thousands of families, and, you know, even getting this story out nationally to know that somebody with, 
you know, a basic murder, you know, that the stories can be told. I mean, there's so many aspects to this, you know, educating to save lives that, you know, that we all deserve a voice to the story. Um, you know, that I don't, whatever their angle is, even if they're against what I'm saying, then bring me on to have the discussion with them and let people decide for themselves. I mean, that's always what I said to the lawmakers, to the media, to people on me, you know, get the facts and then make your decisions. And, and facts are just, we went from not passing the bill three times to this last time really just doing real strong education. We had FOP, the Federation of Police, helping us. But we really sat in every single lawmaker's office, and we changed 15 votes. You know, so. That's significant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, but again, even if you don't believe in what I'm saying, then be a true newsmaker and be willing to and present both sides. Yeah, because I had a I had a, a head of a committee for two years, and he was speaker of our, our our Senate, and he would not even bring the uh, bill up to the committee. And I I went to him, and I went to the meeting. And I said, "Is this a true democratic society where you're not even bringing it up to the other lawmakers to allow them to vote on it?" And so, you know. If it loses because the committee disagrees, that's fine. But at least let the committee. So even if you, I don't change their mind, allow me to, you know, speak to educate to them the to the other side of things. Exactly. Right. That's that's what a free society is supposed to be about. So, you know, and and it's hard. It's hard work. I, I've um, presented a couple bills in our, our legislature and. Um, and it is about money, too. My understanding is a few years ago it cost about, in order to, to bring up a bill and to pass it in our state, it cost about $6,000 or something yeah. like that. But this could save so much money, could save so many lives. I mean, like you said, you, I, you are preaching to the choir here, but but I, I just think it, 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 it could do so much good. But right. I did want to ask you a couple other related questions, if you don't mind. Um, sure. I know initially before, you know, you you were focusing on the DNA, I had read where your maybe what you first started to do was was build, build this bridge in in uh, uh, your daughter's name um, in terms of uh, the, I don't know what the first part was, but the second part was being able to train first responders, and does that, did that have to do with uh, how they do death notification? Oh, it had to do with a lot of things, yeah. It did. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because I'm not so unique. I mean, that which didn't kill us made us stronger, but, um, <laughs> right. you know, it's in wanting to protect, again, other families, that notification was horrific. I was in a little town, and luckily they had notified my son who was in Tulsa, with a, a chaplain and the police officer. This was some young sheriff. And, of course, I was very upset about it, but I ended up going to the chief of police in that town and talking to him. And I ended up, I've done trainings, you know, around with different um, uh, the departments, with the Tulsa police, with their training academy, with OSBI. Um, and I often will talk about it to police chiefs. You know, I think people are much better, but that was one 
to, like I said, when um, I went down there and um, my daughter was um, already taken and then I, I wasn't allowed to ever see her and even the um, the, uh, the funeral director said, well, she's been autopsy. You don't want to see her. And so I had to say goodbye by running my finger over her nose, which was covered by a blanket. You know, they wouldn't even let me. So those things, you know, also training funeral directors and stuff. And I've worked a lot with OSBI in Oklahoma um, trying to um, talk to them because, you know, kindness and protective, but you know, I had the director of OSBI say to me, well, we don't want to, you know, show the family pictures or shock them or anything. And I said, you know, we're already shocked when we get those first words. You've got to allow the family those decisions, whether to see the body or not. Because so many people, I I don't have it, but so many people all across the U.S., anywhere, if you, for some people, they will think if I don't have closure of seeing the, seeing the body, if I don't have certain things done, then I'll never get better. And I know that's not true, but I just want to try. But emotionally, to, you wanted to you wanted to tactfully say goodbye. You know, maybe rubber hair. Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to. Yeah. But I mean, but but I the way I dealt with it was I taught people not to do that anymore. But I do know that a lot of people in their healing process can be devastated and it's, it's like secondary trauma to have something like that happen. And even though I was able to work through it, I, not everybody could. And so I want to try to find as many corners. I mean, I was just doing a panel um, in Connecticut and a, a woman who lost two children at different times. And the way that, she learned about the second murder was through the media. So, you know, we've, and I've had friends who have lost and missing and, and they find out about it on the media before. So there's so many avenues that we can educate. And it's not that people do it meanly. It's just, we don't think about the further impact of all these things. Um, so I don't know if, if that helps. Um, yeah. Know, I'm well, not sure what a producer you know, would want. Well, I I think it's all about telling a human story, and particularly like we what we said prior to the show that there are so many unsolved homicides and so many stories to tell, and they're always looking for human stories, although they tend to gravitate to the most sensational aspects, and they always talk about the perpetrator versus the victim, which just you know, enrages me because we I never know. get we never get the equal time, Maggie. You know, it's out. We're always fighting against that tide because you hear everything, and you're lucky if you're even your victim gets mentioned at all. But well, and we, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, sorry, I don't really purposely do this, but looping back to the DNA, one of the big things that a lot of us have been saying is taking DNA. You know, you argue that it invades the privacy, which it doesn't. But what about the privacy of the thousands of the victims who could have been saved if we took the DNA, you know? And so, you know, so many victims, I mean, again, even in that set, in the DNA site, we talk more about 
the perpetrator than the victim. Right. And with on on that same line, is is it not true that I read that should the person whose DNA was taken and it, it proves that the, or that that they're not convicted, not arrested, and they close the case, then all of that is destroyed, and and the, there is no record of that. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it, it, you have to have it in the law, but like we have an expungement clause in ours, you know, and that that helps focus it. Um, but yeah, some states um, will automatically expunge it. Some states charge to expunge it. it. It's a wide variety, but yeah. Um, and, and nothing can be done with it. That's the whole, I wish I could help people understand that, you know, whether it's destroyed or not, nothing can be done with it. There's nothing you could do with the DNA sample. I mean, even if somebody could ever obtain it, which it's, it's like, San Quentin prison on being able to ever get into where the DNA samples are stored. But I mean, there's nothing that can be done with it. So. Well, see, and I, I think that's one fact that, that people don't know as well. And another thing that I was wondering about, because I, um, I, I own a second property um, in South Carolina and I, hopefully I will be retiring to that property um, one of these days, and I just wonder, like, with getting renters, I think I had read where, whereby there had been other crimes in the area prior to your daughter uh-huh. renting this apartment, correct? Yep. And nothing was revealed. And I tried to look up even today what, um, you know, I work for an agency that deals with people with disabilities, and we have volunteer services department, and we're very strict about getting volunteers. They have to use the state police in doing right. a uh, criminal background check for people to be a volunteer to work with people who are blind and visually impaired, and yet you can rent your condo or your your apartment to any Tom, Dick, or Harry that could be a, potentially a Ted Bundy, and I guess, you know, that's discrimination. Is is that the crux of the matter with this? I mean, why is it that they just do financial checks on people like that and not criminal criminal checks? Well, there's a multiple. Yeah, well, you know, the thing I always say is how can we understand irrational behavior? But, um, you know, because it's irrational. There's no understanding of it. But... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the problem, too, is that if you can look on um, police uh, reports, you know, on every police uh, state uh, website, you know, it can show you the crimes in the area. That's if they're reported. There's no law specifically that I know of, at least none in our state, um, where the uh, apartment owners um, have to identify if other crimes have happened. And that was the problem with us is that we found somebody was actually had broken into her apartment before she lived there. Somebody had also broken into and attempted to attack another girl in the next building down. And we only found out about this after her murder. And when I talked to the apartment manager, she said, we didn't have to tell you anything. Yeah. Um, And then they kicked me off for putting posters. They wouldn't let me put posters around the apartment complex. You know, we still look at people there. Um, But yeah, I mean, 
there's people even in home ownership. I know there's uh, there's been problems where people have been killed in a home, and um, it doesn't have to be publicized. But the background check, you know, the strange thing is they did a background check on my daughter, but some, like you said, somebody can sublet it. Somebody can have other people living in there. Um, security's a problem. You know, a, a lot of the complexes like where she lived, they have um, one security person that goes around to five different complexes. Um, right. How can you possibly thing. monitor correctly? Yeah. Right. And the same right. thing is she went to the high school right next door to it for four years. We never heard about anything bad in those apartments till after. You know, they just, really? you know, it's, it's just crazy. Well, I, I understand if someone has a, a a record of conviction and and maybe they've paid their debt to society, but if they're, you know, if there's something on the record and there there's, uh, you know, I I think just from a human humanitarian standpoint that that people people should be informed. Now, on the other side of it, maybe the property managers think, well, I I would never get this rented if if, if we divulged. X Y Z, which is, I guess, a good point. But I think homicide is is a priority over having an apartment yeah. rented. I'm sorry. And <laughs> and you know, you know I, I agree too. And the same thing. Well, uh-huh. let me put it this way: that same apartment complex, because I would keep, I constantly go in there um, to look at it when I, I would, you know, come down during the weekend and stuff. And one day I saw a young girl and. Um, I guess her father moving in a couch and she had a little baby and and she said, oh, are you looking to move in there? And I said, no. And she said, oh, I'm moving in here. I said, oh, so did they inform you that there was a murder upstairs right above you? And she said, no. And supposedly, I said, well, tell them you know that and you probably are more than welcome to break the contract on that. I mean, they hadn't even told this young mother with a little newborn or not oh, young, well, you know, I mean. Right. I I understand that, you know, I, I would I would want to know too and think twice, but I don't know how we, we conquer something like that because, you know, supposedly, you know, we, we can't show favoritism for anybody that rents. But in, in any case, I'm, I'm never going to understand that one. Um, do, uh, was there a reason why you chose, I mean, you only had a limited um, choice in terms of when your daughter was going to be buried. It was a sake of like three days because she had, you know, she had already uh, been been there for like three days. Um, and and you, you happened to choose her birthday. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, you know, it was a hard decision, but, you know, she was killed on that Monday. The autopsy was not done till completed till Saturday afternoon. And so I had a choice to, you know, bury her a day before because once she was found, you know, then we started setting up the things a day before or a day after. But I said, you know, it's always going to be right at her birthday, so why not honor her? On that on her day. by having it on. Wow, that mm-hmm. must have taken a lot, a lot of strength to do that. What are your? I mean, uh, I know that you're very focused in doing this particular endeavor, but um, are, do you see yourself doing something, something different down the road? Or are you going to keep, 
keep um, t- doing the cat caravan for as long as you are physically, emotionally, financially <laughs> able. <laughs> well, you know, uh, emotionally, I'll, I'll always be able. Um, physically, you know, that's the question. That'll decide it on their own. And financially, I mean, I mean I'm just going to keep doing it because, you know, even now I accept I may not find her murder, but I'm never going to stop trying. And every single time I go out on the road, I get tips or I either I or the police get tips. So, you know, it's just one more thing that gets ruled out. And, you know, there's, I don't know how many people I've talked to. She said, that's not what I understood about DNA. So I feel like it may not be the movement but I'm going to continue to educate people because every person is educated and we get closer to the saving lives. You know, I mean, some people talk to me about going into politics, but I don't think I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're educating people one at a time and, and that's the beauty of it, you know, and I, I just commend you so much and I, I respect what you're doing and, and, you know, your perseverance in this is just incredible. And I really do hope that producers and journalists and other writers and everybody else will listen to the show. And please do take this and utilize it to your best purpose. And I hope that we have made a good connection here and that we will we we will keep in touch as well, too. So if we can do um, anything else to assist you in this endeavor, you you know, uh, you, you have you have my help. Well, you all are just unbelievable, and you will always have a place in my heart. That is, and Delilah or already knows that, but since I just <laughs> you, you, you need to know that now too. Well, we we thank you so much, and we we wish you all the best. And I I think you are making inroads incredibly, and it only takes that one person to help you go national. So I hope they will listen to this show. And um, are, are you returning back to Tulsa now um, soon? Is it tomorrow? or No, I'm actually going to try to hit. I'm in Albany now. I'm going to try to get some stories here. I'm going to try to um, cover New York and Indiana um, and possibly um, one more state that doesn't have DNA and just try to stay out till um, get home maybe Monday and stuff. Very good. Well, please do keep in touch. Keep us updated, and and we'll be sure to uh, keep you on our social media. Okay, Maggie. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, this is a true, true gift. Well, it's it's been it's been wonderful. Um, so I guess we will be closing out this special edition of Shattered Life's Radio. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, Godspeed on your travels. Delilah, thank you so much for taking time out to do this special show. And we will see you on the next edition of Shattered Life's Radio on the next Saturday to follow. Bye-bye. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks. Bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.